Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 25, The Travelers. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. We are coming to you today from Las Vegas, where we have wrapped up uh, attending CrimeCon 2022, um, the convention, where we just have felt really inspired to bring you this episode today. Um, we have had quite the experience with like-minded people, right, Gretchen? So, yeah. I mean, anything that you want to give our listeners from our experience? I mean, it, it just, I mean, what a great weekend. I mean, we've met a lot of people. Um, shout out to anybody who was at CrimeCon 22 that met us and stopped to talk to us, you know. Um, it was a very, very exciting weekend. We got a lot of information, met a ton of podcasters, and... Um, so, and we gambled a little bit Just and a little. Uh, had a lot of drinks. I've been talking and talking and talking. And so you can kind of hear it in my voice and the dry air, but oh, the dry air, we don't not, but we, uh, we really wanted to bring you this episode of these two girls, partly because, um, there seemed to be you know, and what people talked about that drive and that want for an adventure and to travel and to get out of the area. And so it just seemed to fit today with the fact that we were traveling and we were out of the area and experiencing something new. So it's like you bring their spirit along with them. Today. Yeah. And I, I think that was one thing that we kind of went back and forth a little bit, um, just discussing whether or not we were going to record because uh. we don't have our mic and we, you know, aren't in our studio um, is you know, we do this and, and just attending a conference like we have mm -hmm. is to just keep the light on these cases, right? you know, which is inspiring in itself, I think. And I think, you know, that was definitely one thing that we kind of took from the, the conference today and um, is that, um, you know, whenever possible, allow the victims or the victims' families, you know, to to speak, but that we just have to keep getting these stories and these names and these cases out there because if you don't, they end up on a shelf and forgotten about. And, you know, we've experienced that ourselves, you know, when, when we've talked to law enforcement about some different cases where they have said, um, we didn't even know about that case. Um, you know, if you wouldn't have told us about it, we wouldn't have known anything about it. And we heard that so many times today in the last couple of days, yeah. you know, that, um, these, these cases are, are forgotten a little bit about it unless a law enforcement officer stumbles upon it and goes to the shelf or has a connection to it in the past, they just consider, continue to sit there or if a family member or a podcaster or somebody who has interest in the case brings it forward to law enforcement and says, hey, can you look at this? Then they may not even know it's existed. Exactly. And, you know, it could be as simple as having a different perspective. Right. You know, and I think that's one of my takeaways as well is the facts are the facts that everybody knows mm -hmm. that's out there for the public. But somebody could take that one fact that everybody knows and see it a different way 
that opens so many doors. Right. And so, and then the other thing that, you know, um, we heard a lot was the public getting involved in these cases are helping finally find those answers that law enforcement doesn't have the funding to do. When you think about law enforcement, not only funding, but time, they can't go out and track across the entire United States for every person who might have had involvement. So putting this information out there and touching people who might be anywhere so that somebody who has that information might be like, wait a second, I know something about that. So we're going to ask for your help today on one of these cases. So as you're listening, kind of um, maybe grab out a notepad, listen again, see if you have any connection, um, start asking your friends and neighbors if they knew anything going back then. So we're going to um, start today bringing you a case that when we first started this podcast was unsolved, but has been solved since. And we're going to present her as Princess Blue. Yeah. And I think when we're talking about um, solved, yeah. solved and unsolved, what, what we're actually talking about is the case is still actually not solved um, because we have a lot more questions involved in this case, but at the time, Princess Blue was a Jane Doe. So we're gonna bring you that case, um, starting out talking about her as a Jane Doe, but letting you know that she now has been identified, which kind of fills in some of the pieces. It was a warm day in septem on September 10th, 1990, in Manville, Texas, a small town between Alvin, Texas and Houston along Highway 6. And in many of our other episodes, we've kind of explained where that is. So, um, but I'm gonna explain it one time, one more time. Highway 6 um, does go through the outskirts of Houston, Texas and down into some smaller towns, uh, Alvin, Manville, um, Hitchcock and several others, as then it goes um, towards Galveston and kind of dead ends down there by the Galveston Island. So on this day, a man um, was driving down a dead end dirt road. He pulled over to take a closer look at a pile of trash bottles and old tires. When he did that, he noticed a skull and a, and a few bones. At that point in time, he freaked out. He didn't know what to do, so he got back in his car and he returned home. And like most of us would do when we're freaked out about something like that, we would go tell our wife or our husband. And so he went and told his wife, and he's like, oh my gosh, you, I just pulled over and this is what I saw. And she was like, well, we have to call the police. They called the police and the police then arrived to the scene. They took note of the scene, believing that the body had been in the location for about six to eight months. Um, so the body was then removed. The bones were then removed and um, taken to the medical examiner's office. The medical examiner at the time determined them to be of a Hispanic woman between the age of 14 and 19 years old. The examiner could not tell cause of death due to decomposition. What the examiner did say is that she had two broken ribs, but was unsure of when those ribs had been fractured prior to her death. Law enforcement could not find a missing persons case that she matched. Okay, so 
one thing I did ask you when we were um, discussing this is how do they know the ribs were broken prior to her death? Well, what it, um, so, so what, like, how do they know? Is there a way for them to know that? Yeah. So there's definitely ways that medical examiners can tell whether or not the ribs are broken, like after her bones were just left there or whether or not her ribs were broken, you know, like weeks, days or months earlier. And one of the, one of the things is it seems like from the information that I've been able to find, because this is an open case, so they're not sharing their whole case file. But what it seems like they're saying is that these ribs were broken sometime prior to death, but that there it's not a healed fracture, which is what they could, could determine. Like if it had been broken weeks, months earlier, then you would have some sign of healing but they're not making that determination to say there's some sign of healing, but definitely saying that these ribs were broken, not as decomposition happened or because trash got thrown on her. So they could have been happening during the time that she's being killed or during the time that she dies. Um, say if she was in a car accident or something like that, so they could happen kind of simultaneously with that. Um, it could point to a possible cause of death, but it it's not enough to say that caused her death. Okay. So, but there are ways with forensic examinations that they can tell that, but without a release of the information that they have, it's very difficult yeah, because for I, us to tell I think, that. like... And this is just me as a commoner, like kind of speaking. I I think I've heard somewhere along my short lifespan um, that your skin actually starts healing, your bones start wanting to heal themselves, right? So, as a commoner, do we know how quickly that happens? Because if she was abused before this has happened, the healing process would be a lot longer than you know, in that time frame of her being killed. Right? So the healing process on bones are going to start relatively like immediately. Uh -huh. um, but whether or not the, the sophistication of the exam would have been able to tell that okay. in 1990 is, is questionable. Okay. And, and again, it goes back to um, how, which examiner was looking at it, how skilled were they at looking at it and whether or not the examiner um, determined. And because that case, the case file is not really open, we can't see whether or not the examiner is saying, I can see partly a healing fracture here. There are some other um, things that come out to later um, that maybe she had a tumor on her knee at some point in time, which could have been an identifying factor. That I'm assuming is because there was um, bone growth that showed that something like tumor-like had rested against that bone and made a, a change in that bone. Okay. Um, so it's a pretty detailed medical examination. Um, one of the things that we are able to, to get out of this in, in the files that I've been able, the information that I've been able to access is that they seem to have 
at least all or the majority of her remains. Okay. The other thing that they do release to the public is, so they release early on that she's wearing several pieces of jewelry um, and that the jewelry is a turquoise um, ring. It's a unicorn um, turquoise ring and that she's got like three gold rings on, uh, a pearl bracelet and a class ring. When in 1990, when they're releasing this information, they're actually not releasing very detailed information about these um, items that she has on. I'm thinking they're holding some of that back to try to identify her um, and get that identified. Or somebody like came forward right. and said, yeah. my sister, blah, 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 right? Okay. So in order to, you know, the so that they can make that determination. So um, so they don't release a whole lot of information in 1990 about the, these pieces of jewelry. Um, so the unicorn turquoise ring to me, because I'm a, a child, I mean, I grew up in the 80s. It looks so much like what younger teens would have during that period of time. Um, the other rings, um, you look at pictures of them, they're described as um, gold tone rings with stones, um, not very expensive. Uh, I don't know, because they don't release a whole lot of information, I'm not sure that a jeweler actually looked at them, but by their way of saying gold tone, I'm thinking that they at least made a determination to say that those rings were not solid gold or 14 right. karat gold. Yeah, I would assume that too. So sadly, very, very early on, this case pretty much grows cold. Um, there's really this little bit of information that comes out about it, uh, some newspaper coverage, which does seem to be very localized. And then within two to three days, you don't have any more information on this, this case at all. So then, um, police begin to look at this case in 2007. A couple of things that may be happening there in 2007 to get police officers to look at this case is that cases are starting to get put on NamUs about this uh, period of time. And DNA is, is starting to become a standard of trying to identify unidentified remains. So can I just interrupt for like one second? Because, you know, being here at CrimeCon and even with the new cases that we've heard, right? Can we just say what NamUs is real quick? Because I found that fascinating that even today people don't know to do that. So NamUs is a uh, database of missing people. And then on the same database, you also have the database of unidentified remains. So both are, both are on there. Um, and you have information, any identifying information on either side. Um, when that person went missing, descriptions of that person, any photograph evidence, and then um, DNA at this point in time is is gathered and uploaded into those databases so that they can be compared. So if the DNA of the person who's missing is not available, then they have DNA of family members in order to do that. Um, on the other side, DNA of the remains is could be there. Could be there uh -huh. now. Again, this is a really hard thing because those remains would have been buried. 
Um, so With Princess Blue, right? In, in Princess in Blue's case, case, as far as I know, her her remains were buried. It, it, different states have different standards, but in the state of Texas, those bones, um, those remains are to be buried within a year. Now, they're, they can keep them a little bit longer if there's reasons. The case is having some um, luck or, you know, movement, they yeah. movement or maybe they just don't. So, but as far as I know, her remains were actually uh, buried in, in the Manville area. So, but you wouldn't necessarily have DNA at the time that her remains were buried. So you're having to exhume these bodies. That's at a cost to somebody. There is funding available out there, but it's at a cost of, for somebody. So law enforcement agencies may not have all the money to go out and exhume and get DNA samplings of these remains. Okay. The other thing is, if you're a family member who's missing somebody, or you are somebody who, like I like to wander through cemeteries and do like find a grave and that type of thing. So I like to volunteer to take pictures of graves and occasionally you'll run across an un unidentified person. I cannot put that information of that unidentified person up on NEMAS. You have to get a law enforcement officer law enforcement uh, person or a medical examiner to actually do that. So if you're a family member missing somebody, or if you know of somebody who is unidentified, get with your local law enforcement or the local law enforcement where that person is and, and make sure happen. that that case is, is up there. I think that was the one thing. It's like you have to make it happen. You have to right. ensure that they do it. So don't take no for an answer. Exactly. Even if that person is a runaway exactly. or, um, you know, had a, um, a at-risk lifestyle, that it doesn't, doesn't discriminate against that. That person should be on NamUs. So kind of back to the case, though. So in 2007, this case gets a fresh look. The officer looking at this case goes through the items, starts to photograph the items, take pictures of everything, um, and runs across the class ring. And at this point, you get a lot of focus on this case, on that class ring. The class ring is from Robert E. Lee High School in Houston, Texas. Now, that name for that high school has actually changed, but I don't think that that's important because what you're looking for is alumni from Robert E. Lee High School in Houston, Texas. And the ring is dated for 1975. It is, um, it is a woman's class ring Originally, the size of this class ring was 7.5. It was later resized to 9.5. Investigators say it may have been resized more than once. So they went to the company that made the class ring, which I actually think is really great. But apparently, the company doesn't actually keep records for that uh, type of identification. So the investigators talk about, they track down many... Um, Many people who were at the high school, high school seniors at the time of, of um, the 1975, asking them if they were missing a sister or a niece. Now, I kind of want to go back to this. So 
the reason that they're looking for a sister or a niece is because by the age of the bones, they don't believe that the person who was wearing the class ring, which is Princess Blue, would be the individual who would have originally purchased this class ring. Right. Um, and so they're looking for somebody who would be connected to the class ring in that way. Um, one thing I did think was odd here is they were looking for a sister or a niece, but they did not actually talk about looking for a child. So I'm guessing they actually felt like the age range there wouldn't have matched up either. Like a mother passing on the ring to her daughter. Right. Um, so this is where, um, I do know and have run across the letter that they sent to the Alumni Association in 2007 asking for information on this class ring. But what I can't seem to find out is how widely circulated that letter was to the alumni for 1975. So I know it went to the association. I just don't know that it went to all 432, I believe, class people who graduated in 1975. I mean, I would think at best the hope would be 10%. Right. You know. So. That's just me guessing, but. So a lot of movement on this case in 2007. One of the other things that comes out of this is originally they had identified her as a Hispanic woman, right? Between the ages of 14 and 19. With the DNA, they actually come back and say that she is Caucasian, but with an African-American ancestor. And um, that they're putting the age at this point now between the age, the age of 18 and 20. So bumps it up a little Huge bit. difference too. A little bit. It's still within that realm. Yeah, well, with the age, but with mm -hmm. the original. Oh, with the ancestry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they actually then have two sketches done of this um, disposable person. And we'll get a little bit more in because we did say at the top of the episode that she has been identified. So when you look at the comparative sketch of these two sketches to who she's actually identified for, it's, it's one of those things where normally I look at these sketches, I'm like, oh yeah, those look exactly like this person. I look at these two sketches, I'm like, boy, that does not look anything like, you know, who this, who this is. And we'll upload those to our Facebook page. Our Facebook page. All right, Gretchen. So, um, I just want to backtrack a little bit because you're talking about the class ring, right? Do you have, or can you tell our listeners the description of the ring? Sure. So this is a class ring that says Robert E. Lee High School, class of 1975. It has a blue sapphire stone the it's a fake sapphire stone and this is what i also was like i can't believe that i actually didn't realize with the price of what classrooms cost that they made them with fake stones yeah i mean that was just that actually blew my mind a little bit i think a lot of uh, class rings are actually made with fake stones yeah i, I had no clue I, I don't know if any of our listeners knew that but i did not know that so so it's a blue um sapphire stone um fake sapphire stone there is an l 
engraved on the underneath part of the stone so that it sees through shows through when you look at the stone you see that l on the top part of it the um like when you like turn your hand you see it yeah you see okay. it when you look directly at it um the l is always has always been thought by law enforcement to stand for lee for the last name in the high school and and they did talk to seniors who say that's why they were engraving the L was for Lee. I'm hesitant to say that that's the case. Yeah, I don't know if I'd do that on mine. Would you do that on yours? Um, I mean, I got one, and I know I definitely didn't do any. I know like that, that costs. I know that costs more, and um, so. But it already says Robert E. Lee High School. I don't think I'd want people to get caught up on that either. I think that the L could have a significance to a first name. So I think, you know, think along that lines that it could have a significance to a first name. I don't want us to rule of the out. the original owner. Right, of the yeah. original owner. I don't want us to rule out anything based on that, but let's not, let's not. Overthink it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but what I can tell you is this, I can guarantee you this. The Robert E. Lee High School now and then colors were black and gold so when i got my high school ring my high school colors were red and black so my ring is not my birthstone it's actually oh, yeah. red so but what we can tell you is whoever owned this stone would have a september birthday okay so because this stone wouldn't be representing the colors of the school so it would be representing the birthstone of the individual who owned it okay but i'm gonna throw one thing in there so my class colors were blue and gold uh -huh. like royal blue and gold i actually had a royal blue stone on mine only because i love sapphires i actually believe that it had a sapphire so this is mind-blowing to me because Apparently not, but I just love sapphires. So uh -huh. that was always my thing. That's always, I never love my birthstone because it's right. like a blue topaz. It's that see-through blue that just doesn't make a statement. So, okay. So again, so like just, the L, just putting it out there again, like the L, maybe we shouldn't get hung up on that. I will tell you though, um, I'm definitely hung up on the fact that I believe it's a September birthday, but yeah. I think, you know, for research purposes, I think people should always keep an open mind. Absolutely. So, well, and you have to think times are different. I mean, I graduated in 2070s, different time, you know, I mean, everything meant something. So we are going to come back to the ring a little bit later because it is such an important piece of information and we are going to ask for some help on that. So, but I want to kind of start on how Princess Blue gets identified. So at the same time that all this is going on, you know, her the bones are discovered and, and um, they're trying to make connections to who she could possibly be. You have a family in Orange, Texas, who is missing their daughter and sister. That um, daughter and sister is Julie Gwen Davis. She ran away in 1985, saying she was headed to New Orleans, which from Orange, Texas would be a couple hours away, not, not a long distance, not too long of distance. Um, and then about a year later, she returned to Orange to be with her family members, and she introduced the family to her fiancé, a dark-haired man with a thick beard. 
her brother remembers that once saying, you know, one for one moment she was there and then the next moment she was gone, you know, and there just wasn't, wasn't anything more. The family always assumed that she got married and they would hear from her soon. At the time she was 18 years old, she wanted to explore the world and have a bigger life than her small town of Orange, Texas. Julie was the oldest of six children. Her father worked as a welder and her mother worked at a nursing home. Her parents divorced when she was a young teen and she did not take the, the divorce well. She acted out, she ran away several times. She traveled to New Orleans or may have traveled to New Orleans. So when they don't hear from her, they begin trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. So the family actually traveled to New Orleans, trying to locate her, asking people if they knew her, you know, wandering up the, down the street with a picture of her, um, looking for her. Both of Julie's parents passed away in 1993, and that left her brothers and her sisters to the search. Years later, they actually started a Facebook page. The, the name of the Facebook page is, Have You Seen Julie Gwen Davis? And, you know, I don't know what you could possibly do more as a family. You know, this is one of those cases where, you know, people would be like, well, how much was law enforcement involved? I'm telling you that not much. If she said she was getting married and she was going off to start this life, there's not much law enforcement can do here. You know, maybe some record searches to see whether or not your social security number was used. You know, but there's really not a whole lot they could do. Um, and so... I mean, and we have reached out to the family through the Facebook page. Um, we did get some brief responses, uh, but not a lot of follow-up. It's almost like an automated response there. Right. Which, I mean, it has to be managed somehow. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. Well, and we would always ask the family if they would want to come on, talk more about this case, you know, talk about Julie, you know, in a more personal way, we would always put that um, out there to them and do a follow-up episode if, if they reach back to us. Absolutely. So not a whole lot of movement on this case. And then in 2018, Austin police began looking into a case called the a case of a Jane Doe and they had nicknamed her the Corona girl. Uh, she was found on a desolate road in Texas in 1989, and the Texas Rangers really felt like her description matched the description of Julie, and so they were sent to go talk to the brothers in Orange, Texas, and to get some DNA samples so that they could upload those DNA samples to the NamUs profile and see what they could do about identifying the Corona girl. Those Texas Rangers came back to the family and said, the Corona girl is not Julie Davis. Um, but it was shortly after that that they said the DNA had matched another profile in NamUs, and that was the profile of Princess Blue. Once she was identified, it would only lead to more questions. Where she had she been for the four to five years since she left Orange, Texas? How was she killed? Why was she left on the 
end of that dead-end dirt road. Her brother was only able to answer some questions. The gold tone rings were rings given to her by her mother on the day that she left town. The only piece of jewelry that the family did not recognize was the class ring. They have no idea where that class ring came from and they had no connection to having any family members who were connected to Robert E. Lee High School or the Houston, um, Texas. It does kind of make you wonder if that might have been an engagement ring to her or something. You know? I, it, yeah, I mean, it'd be a strange kind of engagement ring to give somebody. But, I mean, back in the day, they used to do engagement rings with class rings. Oh, like promise rings, yeah. yeah Definitely know? like promise ring. The only confusing thing about that, though, is that ring originally at the size 0.75 and the way that the ring is designed because it's a smaller ring is a woman's ring mm -hmm. so it's like somebody got it as a gift like a male maybe have gotten it as From a gift mother, and resized yeah. it yeah um again though the age thing doesn't match up because again you know that person would have been so young in in the 90s that you know if she graduated in 75 and then, you know, he goes off to, to get engaged to somebody by 1990, that person's dead. I don't know that. You're looking at 25 years though. I mean, you never know. I guess so. You know, you know I it's mean, a possibility. Yeah. Right. 25, certainly, certainly in the realm of possibilities. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, there are all sorts of things, you know, that you can kind of, kind of look at on that. Um, but again, you know, there's, she's never reported missing by whoever she's supposedly married. Um, True. Okay, so it's, it's kind of those strange things that really help sometimes by talking back and forth with somebody else. Because I have very much had tunnel vision about this case thinking and I'm sure, and I know that, you know, from some of the, what I've looked at with law enforcement, they're kind of thinking along the same lines. I always think to myself, she left with this older gentleman to head to New Orleans to get married. He doesn't report her missing. He's probably the one who, you know, maybe possibly killed her or knows what happened to her. You're a little bit different thinker. You're like, he could have left her within a day or two of them leaving Orange, Texas, and he doesn't even know what happened to her. Right. You know, and and when you say, well, the ring could have belonged to a son of somebody from the class of 1975, I'm like, no, 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 there's not enough they're, time. They're too young. No, yeah. That, that, that's... And you're like, no, let me just tell you, like, my mother had my brother in 1977 in high school. She was 18 years old, you know? So it's a total possibility. I mean, you can't necessarily rule that out. And I mean, I know I said 25 years, but even 20 years, which is what it actually is, it's still a possibility. Right, you know? and I so I think that's really good to kind of bring out to people who are listening today is that, you know, we all put our own kind of ways of thinking about these different cases on it, and we get, we get stuck on a certain way. And I certainly, you know, when I was writing this case and researching this case, I didn't even like let that realm of possibility in there in my thinking about 
that she could have met somebody who was much younger and that person could have given her the ring. I always had this way of thinking about, you know, the, the guy that they met, meet in 1986 is, is the guy that, you know, she probably would have been with right up until and before her remains were found. But again, like you point out, you can't, you can't look down that tunnel. So as we're asking for your help, which we are going to ask for your help, there are 432, 437 classmates basically in the class of Robert E. Lee High School for the, the year 1975. I have done some searches of trying to find women with September birthdays that maybe we could contact those women or just give a list of and those. And they might have had children. Right. <laughs> but that we could give a list, we could narrow down the class list from 400 and some to a smaller number of only the September birthdays. Now, again, that does like kind of put it a little bit in a hole, but it's filtering. It's just filtering. right. If we I could mean, filter, filter, if we could filter it down and rule out the September ones, then maybe we could open it back up. But here's what I'm asking. If anybody's interested in helping me with that list in breaking that down a little bit, trying to figure out, you know, um, who might have those birthdays, then contact me. I have the list. Also, if anybody knows anybody who graduated from Robert E. Lee High School in a roundabout or attended in a roundabout the year 1975, you know, talk to each other, ask each other about, you know, who this. Who have you heard from? Who's not on Facebook, right? Like, I mean, I know when Facebook first came out, I was like, oh, I'm going to look up everybody ever dated, anybody ever talked to, you know, I mean, like, just look, look. And did possibly a classmate in 1975 later have a wife or a girlfriend who went missing? Yes. You know, or did you ever meet Julie Gwen Davis or just a Julie Gwen, you know, look at her picture, see if, if you knew her, because trying to track down those times of roughly about four years from 1986 to 1990, she was somewhere. So we need to kind of figure out and give law enforcement the information of where she was. Who knew her? Where was she? Because she wasn't in that field for four years. She may have been there for two. She may have been there for one. You know, we're not real sure. But law enforcement has pretty much said she was not there for four years. Right. So they must have enough information to make that guess. Um, so that's kind of my push on, on that case. Getting it out there, talking to people who may not have been talked to. This ring was resized too, and I think that's important. Somebody well, maybe more than once, right? And maybe more than once. So again, that's that's information that's out there that's important. Um, okay, so Gretchen, we're gonna circle back a little bit here. Okay, okay, we're gonna transition back because we have brought up the Corona Girl, so we need to give some background on that. Okay, so the Corona Girl, I just want we're covering Texas killing fields and I do want to let people know the Corona girl is outside of that area. Okay. Still in Texas, but outside of that area. So 
the Corona girl's body was found on the side of Interstate 35 by exit 277 near County Road 304 by two Highway Department Texas workers stopping to eat lunch. One was peeing on a nearby tree <laughs> and noticed the body of a woman near a fence on September 25th, 1989 in Jarrell, Texas. So it's actually right outside of Jarrell, Texas. But if you're also familiar with the Austin area, it's near Austin. And Texas. I just want to clarify something too. When we see county roads, so you could be on a major highway, right? Yeah. And it's very, and I have a hard time with this word, rural. Rural. Yeah. <laughs> like I cannot say that word for the life of me. But on that major highway, you have these county roads that are turnoffs that have blinking lights. Uh -huh. Okay, so just to be a little bit clearer, like make that kind of clear. Yeah, so this this is the major highway, Interstate 35, which is a major highway. And you actually have a lot of activity. Um, but it gets very quiet through right. there because I've driven but, it. But you have a lot of, of remains found along yes, the Interstate absolutely. 35 in the same time period too. So, so this is an exit right off of it and the county road is right there so really and truly the area that you're talking about where these uh workers were from what i can tell you can actually see interstate 35 from where they're at okay um so it's right off interstate 35. the body was determined to have been there for several days and when they i've come back and forth with this with the several so the best that i can get is between three and four days is what their estimate is. She had been shot several times. Again, they're not letting you know exactly how many because this is still an open and active case. She was given the nickname, the Corona girl by the Corona beer t-shirt she was wearing. The t-shirt is very distinctive. Um, it's kind of a, a distinctive Corona pattern on there, but it's fringed all along. So, it. you know, when you told me it was fringed, it almost seemed like one of those, um, like concert t-shirts. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah that's the best way I can think about it. And I'm not a hundred percent sure, you know, when you look at it, whether or not it was purchased like that or whether or not somebody actually did that because yeah, you but can, they'll make them at the concerts yeah, like that. I mean, <laughs> I've been to concerts like that. So, I mean, you can, I can have this t-shirt on and they'll fringe that shit out. So yeah. So you can, um, you can see that the actual t-shirt, um, we'll put that up on the, um, on the website, uh, on the Facebook, Facebook page. page. So again, you know, when you hear that, uh, Princess Blue is identified, you know, you're kind of like, oh, you know, there's almost that sad part where you're like, oh, you know, that's great. You know, that somebody is identified, but then now there's another one, there's another one that, that you think is not, but actually, um, through that DNA and through the, um, the, uh, Texas Rangers and their work, um, in January of 2020, Corona girl was actually identified. She was 17 year old Sue Ann Husky. Sue Ann lived in Sulphur Springs, Texas. She was one of seven children. She was the youngest in her family. Um, her living siblings say she was a happy-go-lucky girl who loved to swim, loved to have fun, and was very close to her family. 
they actually talk about expecting to hear from her around the Thanksgiving time. So she was also very independent at this time, even though she's 17, she is a bit independent. Um, the family did not know why, while why she would be in Jarrell, Texas or anywhere near Jarrell, Texas. The only thing that they thought was a possibility was that she might have been hitchhiking to Austin. For so from Sulphur Springs to Austin is about, or for some Sulphur Springs to Jarrell is about four hours. But they really didn't know any other information. Again, this case is an open and active case too, because this is a shooting of a young individual. This is, this is an obvious homicide. And whether or not there are other answers in this case, one of the things that we can tell you clearly is DNA in Julie Gwen Davis's case is not going to solve Julie Gwen Davis's case. It's not. The only thing that might possibly solve that case is somebody knowing where she was, who she was with, that type of information, and being able to have law enforcement go out there and question that individual and be like, why wasn't she reported missing? What was going on? But DNA is not going to solve it. They can't come back. There's nothing that they can pull out of a box and test and have something magical. The Corona girl and, and Sue Ann Husky, I don't know, you know, um, three to four days, whether or not they have anything. One of the most fascinating things we found out here at CrimeCon is that they actually now can test hair that does not have a root. Oh my God, that was like... For genetic genealogy. And so I was a little stunned over that. So and and, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I do have to say this. So both of them were identified in 90. Or in 2020, right? Uh, yeah, in 2020. That's incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible. The work that genetic genealogy is having for the unidentified does is is just incredible. staggering. Staggering the amount of work that's that's getting done there. Um, and so as we're ending up our episode today, I think I'm going to give you one more plug. If you've had your DNA done by any of the you know, big sites like Ancestry, 23andMe, um, there are a ton of them out there. Load your DNA up to Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch.com. Opt in to allow the um, DNA to use it. Right. Because what I did learn from this is those are the only two that law enforcement can use in court. Right. And it's the only two that they can use to Id mm -hmm. identify these jane does and john does and so you may not have anybody missing in your family that you know but if you're a second and third cousin to somebody i don't know all my second and third cousins certainly not my third cousins um but you could be a second cousin two times removed or something and that could close one of these cases and the last part of this is if you are of a Asian or African-American or a minority descendant, then it's even more vital that your DNA gets into these systems because these systems have a lot more Caucasian European um, information than we have from some of these minority uh, 
problems. And so that unfortunately those cases are getting solved at a much slower rate. And it would help clarify some of that, just like when we were talking about Julie, first of all, being identified as Hispanic, right? Right. Which may not have been a possibility at that time, but it can be now where it would be identified quicker where you're not thinking this is a Hispanic person. It uh-huh. could be a black person. It could be a white person. It could be an Asian person. Like, I think that was one of the more eye-opening things right. for me as well. Yeah, you need more more like, of it the... stops wasting time. Yeah. You, you know? Need, you need more of that subsection. So in there, of the more um, minority cultures. So if we can get people out there to upload their DNA and we can solve, they can solve more of these cases... I think that would be fantastic. So that'd be our plug out there. That's our, you know. And this is coming from the skeptic, okay? (laughs) Because, I mean, just be real. That's who I am, right? Yeah. So So I think for us, those are the two things that we would ask of our audience. You know, take a look. If you're willing, upload your DNA to those two uh, sites so that they can be compared to these Jane and John Does um, to help solve some of these cases and uh, bring these um, people home to their families. And then secondly, if you want to do some mind bending work on uh, the class of 1975 or talk to anybody who might have been involved around about in that time period about, you know, this case, let's get it out there. So, Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We're signing out from Vegas. From Vegas. Okay. Thank you. Bye.